Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 374, and I had a conversation with Daryl Lamont Jenkins. Daryl is the founder and executive director of the One People's Project. Growing up in the punk rock music scene, he was entrenched early on in political activism, and he founded One People's Project to go up against alt-right groups and hate groups. He gained a reputation of publicly documenting these groups and has helped neo-Nazis leave those circles. He's also a producer, most notably Skin, which was based on Erasing Hate, the story of another former Hey Human guest, Brian Widener. That was episode 31. Daryl self-identifies as Antifa and as an anarchist. Really interesting conversation and his story, super fascinating. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your music. And look for my albums. All I ever wanted was everything, how to say goodbye, servicing to breathe. They're all out there in the music places. Check out my relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under Are We There Yet Podcast Show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. Be well, take care of each other, lift each other up, be kind. And here we go. Daryl Lamont Jenkins, welcome to Hey Human Podcast. Hello, everybody. Hello, Susan. <laughs> it's good to see you. Same, same. I learned about you actually a few years ago. I had interviewed Brian Widener, and he mm. spoke of you very highly and said how amazing you are. And I put it in my notes, and I was going through some paperwork the other day and i thought oh wow i can't believe i never reached out to him so uh, that was probably gosh i want to say that was four five five years ago maybe maybe more yeah i would think so that that would have been about the time everybody was um working with the two of us and uh and i think um because that was when the movie skin came out short film and the uh and the feature and we were just all over the place around that time. We talk about 2018, four or five years ago. Then. That sounds about right. Yeah. Because I know Saturday's my birthday. And on my birthday in 2018, I was basically doing press for the um, for the movie. Um, we was just doing the junket all up and down New York City, um, ended up on The Daily Show. We was we were just having a ball. Brian missed all that, unfortunately, because there were just some things that... Uh, they couldn't um they couldn't nail down, but I definitely made sure that everybody remembered that it's his story and that it was um and he he did get involved in some of the um interviews here and there, but unfortunately there were things going on in his life um that kept him away from coming to um you know participate in the junkets and all of that. So, but but he but he was still very much so responsible for why we were out there in the first place so <laughs> we had to make sure that this is his story and this is 
who you're going to learn from the most. Yeah. Well, happy birthday. Much appreciated. I thank you. I'm going to go to a um, uh, punk rock show on that day. Um, my friends, um, there's a band called the Basket Souls that uh, that are going to be playing in Jersey, and I'm going to be there. <laughs> I love it. That's great. What a fun way to spend a birthday. Oh, indeed. <laughs> Let's get into your story. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I was born here, well, not here where I'm at right now, but um, in North New Jersey, I was raised here where I'm at right now, um, um, Somerset, New Jersey. Uh, you know, had um, a father that uh, that was that was just basically a teacher, an educator, a counselor. My mother was a also a teacher and a nurse and a missionary. So you had all these kinds of worlds that were coming in, and you know, basically. Being that education was the family business because it wasn't just us. It was um, it was also my uncles on my father, my father's brothers. They were all educators, and you know, all I did was read World Book Encyclopedia, and <laughs> and you know, that was my life. I was the quintessential nerd. It was World Book in the house, so that's what I read, and that's. What, I mean, I just read it religiously. I shouldn't say religiously because mom would probably get upset about that, but <laughs> it should be reading the Bible religiously. But <laughs> did you but, have um, a, a very religious home then with your mom's influence or was yes, it more grounded yes. in education? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Both. Both. Because, um, you know, my mother made sure that our spiritual soul was in check and um, mom and dad made sure that, um, the educational, the not knowledge soul was there too. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it was important and it still is. It still, it really still is. Um, it helped, uh, it also helps me whenever I have to deal with some of these, um, religious whack jobs who, um, for what it's worth are bearing fault witness out there to try as they try to undermine everybody's freedoms and liberties to think for themselves as they were allowed to. So. It was, it's really important to maintain that spirituality and such for myself, not just for some sort of political tactic, but also to make sure that, you know, your soul's straight, that um, you are going to be good for the rest of your life and beyond, you know, that it, it is important. The work you do now is caring to make sure that the people who are marginalized or people who aren't represented right or people who are as you said, trying to just live their lives freely and come up against those who wish to oppress them. When you were a, a little kid and growing up in your house, was there a concept of that also? Or is that something you learned as you got older? No, that was a concept of that. I mean, it wasn't like my parents were politically political or anything like that. And it shouldn't really be a case of being political to think that way. But, you know, <laughs> it was always my... Um, it was always my direction to be there whenever somebody needed help. I mean, just recognizing the humanity of everybody, you know, that was always the way I was. Um, and I also knew that somewhere down the line, I was going to be um, fighting for people. I mean, I didn't know how. Um, I just knew that the music that I gravitated towards when I was a kid, the things that I want to watch on TV. Um, they spoke to that. They spoke to um, me 
being driven in that direction. I remember when I was in the seventh grade, I told people, I betted them $100 that I would sue the Klan by the year 2000. Um, didn't sue the Klan, but I don't think anybody cares if I welched. So, <laughs> but but I made up for, um, but I most certainly did a number on the Klan and other groups out there. So I guess that would probably make up for it. <laughs> I think that, that makes up for it. What, what made you join the military? You know, simply my father um, said it was a good idea because I was looking at college. I was looking at college uh, and looking for ways to fund college. And my father was talking about it was a good way to um, not only um, get money for college, but also um, get the, I should say, um, get the experience that you are going to need when you apply to jobs and such. And um, and that and that was what I was focused on. Unfortunately, um, my time in the service was not the most exemplary. Um, I didn't do the things I wanted to do, and I didn't do the things they wanted me to do. So it didn't last long, and I was gone. So, um, but I just only thing I know to do, only thing I knew to do from then on was just basically um, chart my own path because that was one of the biggest problems I had with the military. Um, I didn't feel that um, I was in a position to um, basically grow within myself. There was I mean, there was nothing there for me in that regard. And um, that's the biggest mistake that you can make going into the military, thinking that you're going to be an individual. They will always tell you that. But um, and and it, it cost me. You know, um, dad was a little annoyed by the fact that I didn't tell him I was kicked out. <laughs> but um, dad is still was still annoyed for years after I after I left. But um, I think I let a lot of people down in the military. There were people that were relying on me, people that were friends of mine, people that were um, fighting for me when I wasn't fighting for myself. You know, I mean, but most importantly, I had a job to do and I failed to do that job. Um, and because of that, um, I, you know, I got to live with that. I got to live with that. You'll never hear me bad mouth soldiers. You will never hear me bad mouth soldiers. You will never really hear me bad mouth the military per se. Um, even though I'm, I'm a, I'm a leftist and I do have an issue with the military industrial complex. Um, you'll never hear me, um, just diss the service. Outright, um, and and because and the main reason why is because I think I owe it to them not to. At that time of your life, was it more about not really knowing who you were yet as a person, or were there yeah. other things coming at you? I think it was more or less a case of I knew what I wanted to do in life very early on. I just didn't know how to do it, so you know. Took my father's advice and joined the military to get the leg up. Now, my father was right. Let's be real. My father was right. What my father didn't pick up on is the fact that I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and it was also a matter of even if I didn't want to do it, there was a way to do it within the, do what I wanted to do in the military. And I did everything wrong. So, you know, I think it was just really a case of not knowing how to do the things I wanted to do. So. And which branch was it? Air Force, the, the Cadillac of the military. It's probably the, um, the e, it was the it was the service that you would be you would try to join. It's the closest to civilian life that you can get in the military, to be honest. And 
you know, it didn't work out for me regardless. <laughs> well, what happened next? Where did you go from there? Oh, I immediately went into college. Immediately went into college. Still failed that one. But <laughs> but um, but even with that, um, even though I didn't um, do too hot in college, I still was able to find a little bit more of a footing and of a direction that I wanted to go into. So I really wanted to get into media. And um, I, that's what I was trying to do when I was in the military, and that failed miserably. But I wanted to get, get into media, and that in me, and that happened the moment I went into um, my first class and all that. Started getting myself situated. By the time um, I left the mil- uh, left the military, by the time I left school, I was doing public access shows. I was doing um, I was doing in the punk scene more or less. Um, I was not even more or less, more. (laughs) I was definitely in the punk scene here in New Jersey, particularly New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I started um, trying to chart a path that was kind of like off the beaten path. Uh, So I was kind of like in the underground media. That's where the public access came in. I had a little home video camera where I basically videotaped bands that they were performing, bands that probably never made it. Some bands did, like the Bouncing Souls, as I mentioned, um, interviewed them and did just put them on blast on TV shows that I put together. Did you find yourself drawn to the punk scene because of what that scene really represents? I think people think of punk music and they just think people with shaved heads jumping around in leather and beating each other up, but it's really rooted in folks who are trying to stand up against overbearing authority. The music is very there, much people. I think my um, my motivation to us, um, what attracted me, I should say, is the fact that you can come as you are, really. And that was one of the biggest issues that I had um, coming up. The moment I got into the scene, I felt like, yeah, I felt like everybody was down to earth enough that I can be a part of it. I can um, be one with this crowd because because beforehand, you know, I got out of the military and I started trying to hook up with um, one music scene after another. But everybody had put on airs and you couldn't really talk to them unless you really um, hung out with them. And and a lot of people were really hard to hang out with. And on top of that, it really wasn't the really wasn't the style of music that I was going um, the, the going for. I mean, yes, I listened to metal, I listened to hip hop, of course, but it was more about you know I don't hear me in any of the songs that were really popular at the time or really um, what everybody was singing. When I got into that punk scene, I heard it all. I heard it all. And the best thing about it was when people got off that stage, they sat, um, they, they sat in the, they became a part of the audience and cheered the next band on. And then we all went to somebody's house to chill out. And then you found out that other people were in bands and they all wanted to start bands. And you didn't even have to know how to play all that well. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an opportunity to, as I said, be who you want to be, however you want to be. You came as you are. And then we got into the political stuff. And then we got into the more um, aggressive nature of how we approached life. 
<laughs> you know, when we when we can um, when we was, you know, you can be critical about, say, Ronald Reagan or George Bush and all of that as a Democrat or as an anarchist. One thing to be critical, another thing to say, OK, so what are we going to do about George Bush? And I went towards the, in the direction of what we were going to do, not necessarily about George Bush, but also how are we going to um, deal with this issue that we have right here? We, um, we're trying to urge people to um, donate money to the, uh, you know, um, such such fund to um, help people eat or something like that. Or you can start a food bank <laughs> yourself. You don't have to wait for anybody. That's where I started coming in with the punk scene. That whole DIY, do-it-yourself attitude that came along with it. That was important to me. And that's did why, you know, that's why I called it home. I still call it home. Did you feel like an underdog growing up at all? Did you feel like your, I mean, obviously you're a black guy. When you were mm -hmm. growing up in that era, I think there was a whole other thing going on. I don't know about New Jersey, but certainly across the country where there was a lot of marginalization that, you know, the, the planned destruction of black communities and all that. Did you experience any of that? It's weird because I didn't think of it as I, I didn't really consider myself marginalized in that regard. Not, not that, not that, you know, black people were catching hell, but you know, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in black suburbs, no less. So I saw black people doing okay. But I also saw what um, things on the news that made you go, okay, there are people who don't like that all that much. So, but I wasn't really politically rooted until after I started reading a little bit more um, Dick Gregory, started listening to Whoopi Goldberg a little um, when she first came out. Public enemies started coming in. I mean, I was politically astute, um, but I really just went above and beyond um, after I started hearing people say things that I needed to hear, you know, and that wasn't until um, six months before I got kicked out of the military. So <laughs> I wonder why that happened. Well, I was just um, going to say, I mean, I can imagine, <laughs> I'm the, as you spoke to a minute ago, the military is about creating a hive mind and not about an individual. If you are an individual in the military, they root that out pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that doesn't surprise me that if you were trying to individualize within that system, that doesn't really mesh well. It's weird because August 11th um, of this year is going to be the 50th anniversary of hip hop. August 11th of 1988, I was in Hampton Coliseum and I saw basically the history of hip hop. You had Stetsasonic come on stage. I was actually in um, serving in the military with um, the brother of someone from Stetsasonic, Daddy O's brother. And uh, so there was that. Then you had EPMD, who I was. Um, just started coming up, just started um, coming up. They started putting the banner up for Public Enemy. Everybody was wondering who Public Enemy was. They didn't know, and everybody was just waiting to see what they would sound like. And they, we all didn't know 
what the hell hit us after that? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that was the turning point. <laughs> and then, you know, it was actually Run DMC's show. Um, you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince came on after um after um Public Enemy, and they definitely tore it up. Um Run DMC tore it up. But I came, I, I was going home thinking, um, you know, uh it, Public Enemy. <laughs> Public Enemy to this day is my favorite, um, my favorite hip hop crew of all time. So it's just like I was so glad I went to that show. But that show pretty much got me kicked out of the military because my attitude changed. I got in trouble. I mean, I got my final bit in trouble was me cussing out my supervisor in January of 89. Um, and that was just a couple of months after I saw the show. My attitude was changing. Um, but it doesn't negate the fact that I was still, you know, not doing the best job I could when I was in the military. But but part of the reason why was because I didn't belong there. And, you know, I was just really feeling stymied for real after I saw that show. And I was like, I got to get out. I have no business here. Uh, a couple of months before then, I actually got annoyed because um, there was a spin article, a, a cover story on LL Cool J um, and Public Enemy. And this is how I first, I mean, I, I heard Public Enemy before um, because I had, this was at a time when you could buy hip hop albums without listening to them <laughs> and not be disappointed. And I bought Public Enemy's first album that way. <laughs> I liked what I saw on the back cover. I was reading this article and they started slamming, um, they really started slamming Public Enemy in it, the opening, who was opening for LL on this particular tour. And, uh, and they particularly got upset because Chuck D had said something about how they're fighting the Klan. And they did the typical thing that they did in the 80s. They basically said that even the Black people were annoyed by that saying, oh, we just want to listen to the music. I was like, oh, brother, no, no. This is what we want to listen to. I mean, and, um, and it was a couple of months later, I got a chance to see Public Enemy live. And see exactly what they were complaining about in that spin magazine. I was like, oh, what's wrong with this? And by the way, I actually knew that Public Enemy was going to do that because Bring the Noise and um Rebel Without a Pause was um was on um was on the radio at the time. And you know, they were saying things like Farrakhan was Farrakhan's a prophet they didn't think you ought to listen to, and there was a loud proud supporter of Chesamard as a kid. Remember, I really wasn't involved in politics yet, but as a kid, I never heard that. I never heard people defend Farrakhan. I never heard people defend Chesamar, a.k.a. Asada Shakur, you know. So when I heard it on the record, I was like, what? <laughs> what did I just hear? Really now? Okay. <laughs> my job in the military was a police officer. I was in my gate shack, Cameron Public Enemy, saying this, and I was like, man. Wow. And I and I wasn't hit until I actually saw them in on um on stage and do you feel like in that moment it woke up the thing that you were always going to be? Yeah, because I do remember um leaving the show um saying saying to myself, um 
I am never going to be told that I can't do something anymore. And that's all I heard while I was in the military. I said, that's going to stop. So, yeah, I definitely, had, like I said, I had an attitude after I got out of the show. I had an attitude. Not, not naked attitude, but, you know, yeah. I knew that there was a direction I needed to go into. And that's when I started. Um, getting into more arguments with folks in the gate shack, political arguments, and now and um, but um, but you know, re respectful arguments. Um, sure. But I was talking about Whoopi Goldberg's um, what Whoopi Goldberg was saying on her um cassette tape. I mean, I was listening to some of her um her HBO special on tape at the time, and that also resonated with me. The second one, um, where it was just Fontaine. The character, the character Fontaine. Yeah, I remember that. That was really, that was really what um, sent me. Yeah, that was really, what sent me. And you know, Dick Gregory. I started reading more of his books, or his old books from back in the sixties, and um, I was learning a lot from that. I was just like, I can't do any of this while I'm here. So, you know. Once I got out of the military, I just basically hit the ground running. How can I? And when I got out of the military, it was about the same time the Central Park jogger thing happened. A couple of months later, Bensonhurst happened. And then, you know, everything started to snowball. Ed Koch got fired and David Dinkins came in. And oh, boy. I mean, this this was the world I was growing um, I was I was leaving the Air Force to go into. And it was like. Yeah, I'm going to be busy. And I wasn't in a punk scene yet. I was still trying to figure out what direction I was going into in regards to that. As a kid, since you were growing up insulated, you know, you had a great yeah. family. You were in a suburb that was, you know, you you weren't trying to find people that look like you. I think representation was all around mm -hmm. a successful, happy. We had... We had Black history courses in our school. We had an yeah. African-American history course. Everything was fine. Par yeah. Our parents knew exactly what neighborhood they wanted to raise their kids in. Sure. So when you left the bubble of that loveliness, and now suddenly you're out of the military, there's rhetoric on the news, in the music, everything around you. How did that shape you being a black man in America, too? Because suddenly this kid who grew up going, what's the big deal, is now realizing it's a big deal of how people are being treated. Yeah, because I think when I was in the remember, I said I was a cop when I was in the military. And boy, was that an eye opener. It was an eye opener as to how I should conduct myself as a black man, number one. And number two. How people, how other police officers saw black people um, in the military, it's even when we were in the military. But there was also the thing about how um, every how women were treated. I mean, I don't even want to start talking about the homophobia because, unfortunately, it was the eighties, and even I got caught up in that because it was during the time of AIDS. I mean, I wasn't. I wouldn't say that I was a homophobe, but I was a homophobe. <laughs> you know, it, it, I did, there was um. I mean, you know, you had you had the attitudes that um. You know, that were prevalent. If you if you were caught up too much in the mainstream of any society, you're going to get caught up in 
the bad as well as the good. And that was the bad. I didn't, I wasn't mean to anyone or anything like that. I was just, I guess, a centrist about it because I never met anyone that was gay. You know what changed all of that? When I met my first gay person, that should not be the case. <laughs> that should not, and I met my first gay person at the, fir at the first punk show I went to. <laughs> that was quite you an know. education, that punk show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. I mean, I, I mean, it, it wasn't so much that I was um, homophobic or anything like that. I mean, you know, I'm bouncing back and forth me saying I was and I wasn't. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think um, but I had to learn. It, it, there was a learning curve that I had to get on and like immediately when the AIDS crisis hit. Um, I was very uncomfortable about the jokes. For example, I mean, I knew some. I knew that something was. I knew something was very wrong about how Rock Hudson was treated. And I mean, his entire career was just like wiped out. Now that was all anybody knew. Him. And then same. And then when Liberace died, um, I don't. I'm not sure whether or not if it was in fact AIDS. But when that, but, but when there was rumblings, I was like, you're about to do that to Liberace too. But again, none of that mattered. None of that resonated with me until after I got on that to start really enjoying the world. I really do think that it wasn't so much trauma that put me on um, the path, you know, put me on a political path or anything, but just the fact that I was really experiencing life more, you know. Once I got out of the military, especially when I was in the military, I saw a lot of negative, but I didn't resonate with it yet. When I started going to college and started going, um, being involved in the scenes more, um, I really started to enjoy the people around me and felt I needed to protect them. I'm really just thinking about it as we're going along here. That's why I like doing these things. <laughs> You founded One People's Project, which is an anti-fascist, it confronts nationalism, it confronts racism, confronts homophobia, confronts all the, the ism schisms. Right. What made you decide it was time, as you said, to not be a partisan thing, but to do the thing and, you know, not to join right. someone else's, right. but to start your own? Well, it, was, it also goes back to um, I knew what I wanted to do, but didn't know how. Um, I really had been following and just keeping an eye on the white supremacists for a long time, but only if they showed up on TV. It was um, when uh, I was in when I was in the Air Force, I was in my dorm. I turned on the TV and Oprah Winfrey was going after some white supremacists who called themselves skinheads. Um and we were just learning about them in the mainstream. And that made me realize I need to start keeping a file, rather start recording a lot of these um, racist groups whenever they show up on TV so I can study them. When I got out the Air Force, I started studying talk radio because they started talking like the folks that I saw on all those shows. I mean, and I'm talking about not just like Rush Limbaugh or somebody like that, because he was doing that. But there was a guy in New York named Bob Grant who would let neo-Nazis leave their contact information on his um, airwaves. He was on 77 WABC. 
which and and for someone to be on that mainstream of a um outlet says that yeah we better pay attention of course pat buchanan was out there saying things that made me raise an eyebrow or two there and i didn't realize where he was going until really started paying attention so you know we're watching all of this we're watching and there were very few opportunities to go after full-on neo-nazis or white supremacists here in the state of new jersey um but i was still documenting and i was still um keeping an eye on whatever it was anybody was doing at the time and then in 2000 there was a white supremacist rally being held in um jersey and we had to mobilize and because i had been doing a lot of compiling of information i had all the information anybody needed to deal with the various individuals we started a website um to coordinate uh, our counter efforts um after the rally we used the website to not only coordinate efforts to help people that were getting arrested but uh, that had gotten arrested but also to keep learning more and more, keep helping people learn more and more about the uh, white supremacists that we had um, dealt with. And we expanded it to all of them. As a matter of fact, we expanded it to anyone that was on the right or slash far right, because our um, initial meeting was to, um, our initial uh, mission was to show the connections between that far right and the mainstream right. And, and we were pretty good at it. <laughs> we were very good at it. And that was really the beginnings of One People's Project. Was it easy to find like-minded people to help you to get into the flow? No, it was not. Matter of fact, that's why we're a small group today because, you know, people want, um, you know, you have a lot of people who are, um, who, who are active, but they, um, can sometimes get caught up in the tried and true methods, you know, like being out there in the streets and all of that. Um, whenever they announce that there's going to be um, a rally on the courthouse steps with they being the, um, the neo-Nazis, we, we hope to be there. We plan to be there. We plan to counter them. We wanted to get a little deeper. We wanted to get them on their off time. <laughs> and our thing has always been going back to being a nerd was studying them, um, trying to find out who they are, where they come from, and and what they're about, and putting that on websites so people can have the information. That has been our mission since 2000. You have gone and gotten into, I would say, people's faces, but you've had all sorts of interactions. You've had conversation. You've gotten mm -hmm. into brouhaha's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does one, or how do you particularly, approach somebody who has this mindset in order to, I mean, is your goal, I'm sorry, I'm like tripping over myself, is your goal to change their mind or is your goal to say, we know you're doing this bully energy, we're not going to stand for it, just know you're on watch, that there's people out here that know what's going on and what you're doing, and we're not going to let you get away with this. What is your mindset? My mindset is to protect those that I care about. My mindset is to protect the society and communities that I care about. That is always going to be first and foremost um, my mission in life. Um, sometimes we that involves having a conversation with the other side, if that's possible. 
Other times, it does mean straight up fighting. Now, fighting them means being aggressive in trying to keep them from positions of power. Other times, and you try to make this as the last resort as much as you can, but other times it does mean swinging. Now, years ago, in like in the 90s, we went straight to the swinging. But... <laughs> But back, but you know, when you're 32, 33, 40, uh, try not to do that as much. I at least I try not to do that as much. But it's there, it's there, and it all depends on how um, they are approaching you. You know, I mean, the movie Skin actually puts um, shows this in the beginning. I mean, it shows the two the yins to the yang. Yeah, I'm going to be um, yelling and screaming and talking trash to you if you're in your little rally. Um, if you're aggressive towards me, I'm going to be aggressive towards you. you know? And on the other hand, if you want to talk, if you want to chill, if you want to um, try to make your case even, um, I'll, I'll lend an ear. We'll talk. Sure. Um, and if you're looking the way to get out, I'm there for you too. I mean, I'd rather you not be an enemy. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd rather um, the situation would be that um, there is less fighting and less um, tensions between the two sides. So if there's any opportunity um, that arises that allows for that, yeah, I'm going to take it. In your experience, and I think of Brian, who obviously was in one of the most violent, dangerous white supremacist skinhead groups and then turned the corner and was actively speaking out against it and credited you at, when I interviewed him, at least in, in 2018, 2017, whenever that was, that he spoke of you as one of his best friends. That's a huge yeah. arc of an experience. What, do you personally think is the thing that draws people into being racist or homophobic or whatever, again, whatever it is that they've decided to hate for hate's sake? And what is the key to pulling them out of that? You know, everybody comes from someplace, you know, and I think when that someplace for certain people, is a dead end or at least seems like a dead end, they want to try to change that because they got to live that life. And when you're frustrated, when you have a lot of that um, psychological damage that comes from such dead ends, um, you're reaching out to anybody who can help turn, help turn you around and put you on um, some good footing or what have you. And I think it's always a matter of who those individuals end up being. Sometimes it can be a positive thing, like say a religious group or a, a civic organization or our side, <laughs> you know. Other times it can be um, the, um, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, the far right, whatever. Whatever is, um, whatever is there to say, you know, we'll keep you afloat. Is going to be where you're going to go, and um, and and that's what we see. We are fighting people who are basically fighting themselves in many respects. You know, there's that old saying: "Hurt people, hurt people." <laughs> and 
when it comes to dealing with them, even though we are assertive against them in one fashion or another, um, we also recognize their humanity and try our best to help them recognize it. I mean, that's a line that I use all the time, but it's an, um, but it's an important line to note, not just um, to help people understand where we're coming from, but to understand where society in general is coming from, because society really doesn't want this kind of drama. I mean, we have built a pretty nice society around here and people should learn, people should be able to appreciate it, all people, even the ones we have issues with. And unfortunately, so we try to encourage those that we do have issues with to get off the high horse, for lack of a better term, and start um, looking at what you're missing, you know. What happens when, as you spoke to in the beginning of this conversation, people hide behind a God front in order to spout their hate, then how do you, how do you go up against a God image? Well, it all, again, it always will depend on the individual. Um, however, having said that, um, it does require um, a recognition that when you're starting to deal with um, people who are coming from that um, Christian right kind of thing, um, that there's something else going on, something else that's totally removed from, uh, um, you know, spirituality, you know. Now, because uh, and, and that is what I'm dealing with in this day and age. Now, you, I, I, let, let me preface that by saying that in, um, say, like the early 90s, you did have evangelicals that were, in fact, evangelicals that did truly believe in God, that did truly believe in serving him. But when you are dealing with um, the folks today, now it's just a tactic. Um, and I'm going to have to preface that even further. Because I, um, because I was at the Moms for Liberty conference um, here in in Philadelphia about a month or so ago, almost a month ago, believe it or not. Wow! Um, and there was a speaker, the um, president of the Heritage Foundation, named Kevin Roberts, was hyping up a book called "Roots of the American Order" by um, Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk is known as a guru of conservative ideals to other conservatives. Um, I look at him as a segregationalist, as a hate monger, and as an anti-Semite, because that's what he was. And he has written extensively on all of that. Um, but the one thing that um, he had said, that he has said in the past, is that God, you don't choose God, God chooses you. And no, that's not how this works. <laughs> you are supposed to come to Jesus. <laughs> you know, I mean, and this is and this is what how Christianity has been for over a couple of thousand years. Um, you are, I mean, God has. Jesus has died on the cross for your sins, and you are to accept him as your Lord and personal savior. 
It isn't Jesus died on the cross for the living heck of it. And, and you can come, you can come if he chooses you. That idea that you're anointed in hate. See, I've been anointed yeah. to, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, so we already know the point, point I'm making is that we're already coming from a position where they are lying about their faith, where they are bearing false witness. And that means it's phony. Okay. That means it's phony. And so, you know, when you're dealing with these characters coming up to you in the name of God and liberty, it's all game. It's all a lie. You're going coming in that direction. You're coming from that direction, even if you're not even about um, faith and not even about spirituality, about God or Christianity or whatever. You are more real than they are. When you're dealing with today's conservatives, and this is one of the reasons why um, the foundation that they had 30 years ago is non-existent. So when you're dealing with today's conservatives, you're dealing with people who are not trying to build, not trying to evolve, not trying to create. They're trying to win. And that's all that matters. They just want to win. And they have been steadily losing for the past 60 years. And the only thing that matters to them is that they turn that around. Remember, the whole thing about Donald Trump is that there was going to be so much winning that they were going to get tired of winning. You know, that that's a whole that's the whole message right there. But when they win. They lose <laughs> because everybody loses when they deconstruct everything that was supposed to make this society and this nation the bastion of freedom that it was supposed to be. Granted, there's some bumps along the road. I'm a black man. I better say that. <laughs> um, but in the end, this society is supposed to be a society where you are supposed to have liberty and freedom. And they have taken it away in the name of preserving it. And that's and and the only reason why they're doing it is because the world doesn't revolve around their white Christian male dominated um, hierarchy. <laughs> and they don't know what to do with themselves. It's so bizarre to me as I watch the politicians take more and more rights away from people and the people handing them over freely in some cases. and all the while saying about how they believe in a government that's less involved. And yet, as we're seeing move across the nation, the massive oversteps of people's civil, human rights, liberties, all of this is mind-boggling. It all goes back to the fact that they don't believe in a single word of what they're saying. Again, they're just trying to win. They're saying the right things to the right people. So that they can, um, so that they can go ahead. Ultimately, if you really think about it, a lot of today's conservatives aren't even doing it because they believe in it. They're doing it to get paid. I mean, that there is. I mean, I remember when conservatives um, will come at you with some sort of skin in the game. But you look at somebody like Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA, 
he just got a couple of thousand dollars from some billionaire or some or some benefactor. I don't know if he was a billionaire, but um, to just start turning point USA, it's not his money. We've heard them on hot mics. We've heard them in emails to each other or or texts to each other. They don't even believe the crap they're saying, but they know if they say it loud enough and often exactly. enough, they're going to make millions of dollars, whether it be exactly. from being a talking head or a book. or a, It's the same thing with like the Y2K craze. And to, to put it in some other context, everyone's saying the end of the world was coming. And who made all the money? The people writing books about it, the people building bombs right. or, or whatever preppers. Or There are people taking deep, deep advantage, financial advantage of those who are easily made afraid. And that's what that's what irks me about Charlie Kirk. That's what irks me about Candace Owens. That's what irks me about Tommy Lauren. Those three individuals, none of them had real world experience. None of them have ever had a real job in their lives. And they're they're young and they don't even think they have to anymore because somebody gave them money to agitate against the rest of society, the rest against those that actually do work for a living. You know, I mean, it really annoys me. And, and Ben Shapiro actually put this out. Um, now, Ben Shapiro really annoys me because you're talking about pretty much a child prodigy. This dude got his law degree at 22. He was on, I mean, he, he's a brilliant SOB. Yeah, it's usually very smart people are, are look at the forefront of this. The problem yeah. is, the problem is he gave somebody gave him some money. He he started working with right but and all that. He's not using it to practice law. He's now a grift. He's now just as one of the grifters. And he made it clear when somebody was um insulting him, somebody was calling him out, and he says, Yeah, I'll go, I'll think about that when I'm laying on my bed of money. And then when he said that's it, that's all it's about. Yeah, of course it is. Hate pays so much better than love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hate does. I mean, that's why, you know, I have I have a job right now. It's basically that's other than what I do for a living of what I do here. I have a job that pays the bills. Their job, um, their job is to go after those trying to pay the bills. That's it. I mean, I, I love it whenever we go out there and protest and these idiots on TV talking about um, uh, do they have real jobs? Um, do, do you work or anything like that? So, like Sean, who's uh, even complaining about professional activists and such? And I, and I was about to say Sean isn't Sean Hannity because I was going to say, but Sean, who pays your checks? I mean, Rupert Murdoch's name is on your million dollar checks. All you do is is be an activist profession. You know, that's all your job. You go up there to talk trash about everybody, everybody that's doing something. That's really what um what I say about people like Ann Coulter and such, that they're talking about what we're doing. Go do on. you do you consider yourself Antifa and what does that mean to you? And how did it get manipulated to mean something else in your mind? I'm Antifa without question or apology. One People's Project email address for the past 20 years was Antifa, is Antifa and OnePeoplesProject.com. You know, Antifa um, is short for anti-fascist. And if you're against fascism, you're Antifa. Plain and simple. It's been like that since the 20s. Nothing's changed. 
What did change is the need to build up an enemy, the need to take down an enemy, and the need to um, to propagandize and raise money, pretending that you're going after that enemy. That's why you would see so many, and this is the other thing that goes along with the um, conservative grifts, so many propaganda things that are just straight up lies that aren't truthful about um, a single thing that's going on out there. Like the biggest thing that I really annoyed um, anti-fascists a couple of years ago was they would mobilize the right, especially these far right characters would mobilize because they saw something online saying that Antifa, (laughs) it's pronounced Antifa, so I make jokes about that one time, that Antifa was supposed to be um, going to this um, spot in a small town somewhere where none of us go. (laughs) And so they will, in one case, it was Gettysburg. It was the um, Gettysburg Memorial Park. Nobody and taking down Confederate flags that weren't there to begin with. Um, and they were mobilized, they will have their uh, um, um, events talking about how they're there to stop Antifa or Antifa or whatever. And when we don't show up, they say it was a victory. It's like, no, it wasn't we weren't planning on going out there in the first place. And in the case of Gettysburg, it was comedy because, um, one of them found a way to shoot themselves while they were waiting for Antifa to show. Um, there's a guy named, I mean, th- th- there's so many kind of propagandizing routines that they pull. It's ridiculous. There's one guy who pretends that he was um, was Antifa back when he was in high school and all of that. And no one knew, no one knows who he was or is, you know, but he makes a lot of money writing books and doing, um, and doing speaking engagements, talking about his time as Antifa, and he, and the only thing that you can find on him politically is when he started a libertarian group in his um when in his college days, and he was so he has always been right wing in the public eye until he decided to pretend that he was Antifa. I'm not saying his name for the sake of not giving him any credence because he hasn't been heard from in a while. The thing that really surprised me is how fired up people get on lies and that they they really will just take it at face value and not dig any deeper than just the surface, which says, I think, a lot about what the nature is in their heart of what they want to believe. I remember people saying, oh, the Black Lives Matter protests are destroying Portland and it's on fire or New York's this or that. And I have friends all over the country. So I just called up my friends in Portland. Hey, are you guys okay? Is, are things falling apart? Talking to actual people that live there. And everyone said, everything's fine. There's no, I don't know what that's all about, but that's not true. And I would report that back and they would say, Nope, that's that's not true. I'm, and I say I'm talking to the people that literally live there, and they're saying the things you're being shown are a lie, mm-hmm. but their hearts want to believe the lie before they believe the truth because it supports whatever stuff is going on inside of them. It's weird too because I remember. I mean, I've been to Portland a couple of times, and only people that were really doing violence in the times that I were there were the police. 
and the Proud Boys. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the last time I was in Portland, it was um, Proud Boys that were attacking people and turning over their vehicles. One of them is in jail right now for that nonsense. Um, but but that gives you an idea of yeah, it's more it's it's easier to believe the lies in some cases for some people. It's more important. I remember watching Jordan Klepper of the Daily Show. Love him. Talk about um, having um, a discussion with um, with one of um, with a Trump supporter who has said something about John Bolton and all of that, and he challenged her on um, on a particular point. And when he made that point about John Bolton and expected her to um, change her position, she just simply said, I don't care. She didn't even care what the facts were, you know? And that's when you realize you're dealing with something very different than, um, I should say, reason. <laughs> you're dealing, again, with people who just need to win no matter how much, uh, how wrong they are, no matter how much they are losing. Or who needs to, or they need to attach deeply to hate Mm -hmm. because it makes them feel empowered or better than as long as there's somebody or something to hate for whatever reason, it triggers that dopamine cocaine response in their brain and Mm -hmm. the hate becomes the drug. Yeah, it does. And uh, I mean, no better example than that is why I'm going to be in Nashville in about a month. It's because um, there's going to be a white supremacist conference that has been going on at Montgomery Bell Park um, for about a decade now, for about 10 years now. And we're going to do what we always do. We're going to be protesting against it. And uh, they get very little opposition. Um, hopefully that'll change this year. And uh, but because of that, they feel comfortable, comfortable enough that um, in 2017, it was the organ, the organizers of Charlottesville went there to organize and network and get people out there. And when we saw what happened two weeks later um, this but year, there are, but there are people who still think that the people that died in Charlottesville were paid actors crisis. I and mean, there's actively that people. just goes back to the line that they need to tell themselves in, um, in order to, um, in order to maintain, in order to maintain themselves, you know, you know, I mean, basically every time a white supremacist shows up and we know they're white supremacists, um, they just call them feds. They're, they're feds. This is the fed op and all of that. And it was so funny because I was also in Idaho whenever Patriot front had gotten arrested. And, and this was a couple of months after I saw them at the American Renaissance Conference. And when they were getting arrested, they, um, there was a guy who was um, trying to, um, who, who had basically organized, and by the way, I should say, when Patriot Front got arrested, they were trying to crash a pride fest in Idaho. And there were people outside that were protesting it um, or trying to protest it and trying to march against it. The main guy that was trying to march against it um, was trying to say that Patriot Front um, getting arrested, that's just a fed op. Those, all the Patriot Front members are feds, yada, yada, yada. His right-hand man's sons were among those getting arrested. <laughs> so, oh, and by the way, speaking of, the, of the, that particular crowd, when you hear groups like Moms for Liberty, when you hear the um, agitation against 
the LGBTQ community because they're trying to go after groomers and such. When you think about the fact that Patriot Funk was trying to storm and trying to um, cause some upheaval at a Pride Fest, note that one of the guys that got arrested is sitting in jail right now because when he got arrested, they found child porn on his phone. Well, that's the other thing that's so frustrating. They scream, yeah. There's the rhetoric, rhetoric now screaming that LGBTQ plus or drag queens are groomers. And... The, the truth of the matter is they're not looking in their own family, their own churches, their own coaches. All these things are coming out. None of those folks are LGBTQ or, or drag queens that are doing this stuff. And yet they just double down and triple down. And it's like, you know what? Take care of your own house first. Well, see, that more than anything else really needs to be addressed by us if we want to see it see it go away because I always thought that it was weird how QAnon and all of them decided to use pedophile as a um as a pejorative against people that they are fighting with just out of the blue just call them a pedophile regardless of whether or not you know anything about that person um now we have this campaign against um trans people against the LGBTQ community um in the name of protecting children and then we just keep on getting one story after another <clears throat> about these individuals from the right, um, from uh, our religious groups that are themselves um, assaulting children. Um, I, I told people, look, sooner or later, we're going to find out somebody that went to the Moms for Liberty conference um, was uh, is getting jammed up because they themselves are abusing the children. They themselves are watching child porn or whatever. And that tells us, never mind the fact that they're hypocrites. They're, they're, they're not hypocrites. They're trying, I think, in many respects, they're trying to deflect from a lot of what they see in their circles, a lot of what we all see from their circles. I mean, remember, we was all going after <clears throat> the Catholic priests um just just a couple of years ago just about a de decade or two ago um a couple of years after Sinead O'Connor was telling us to do it and she got basically chased out of the country for that um incidentally one I used to um infiltrate um anti-choice activists and I went to one of their churches and a the the pastor of one of those churches is on that list of Catholic priests. Um, I found that out just a couple of months ago. And if we do have that issue, every time they come at us, every time they come at anybody in the name of protecting children, we should say exactly what you say. Take care of your own backyard. But add a caveat. Take care of your own backyard or we will do it for you. Every accusation is a confession. But we got to go beyond complaining about it. We really do have to start putting pressure on them to start taking care of their own backyard. We're not just going to tell them. And here's the way, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to just go after what supports them. They're saying, look, you got, I mean, we don't even have to mention the fact that they are, um, that they are coming after everyone else, you know trying to cancel people and trying to cancel books in the name of um, protecting children. 
in the name of protecting children, we need to go after their institutions. We need to make sure that the whole thing about Moms for Liberty is um, we, we basically went after the Marriott for even hosting them. And we have to start putting the pressure on any institution that caters to this particular crowd. If, if we find out that someone from their crowd has, um, has been engaged in that kind of activity, I, th I think of um, the group, the, polit the Conservative Political Action Conference is run by um, Matt Schlapp. I mean, the CPAC is really huge when it comes to um, conservative networking and um, organizing. That, that conference happens every year. We should be putting pressure on the National Harbor Resort in Maryland to say, because of Matt Schlapp's past activities, um, uh, rather accusations regarding um, how he has um, sexually assaulted or what have you, um, one of Herschel Walker's aides, campaign aides, we really got to start calling, and, um, and you got to bear in mind also, CPAC, that also means you have a number of people that are also been coming through that particular conference that have such accusations. We need to start um, putting pressure on the venues like National Harbor, whatever is in Orlando, Florida, and start saying, do we want to cater to their deflections? We have to start putting the pressure on venues and other institutions that help this nonsense along as, and say, stop doing that. I keep seeing all over, the vine. all over social media. There's all these posts about the new movie about the, the children trafficking. And I keep saying, you know, there's been like 20 really excellent documentaries, not based on a true story, but actual true stories of movies and of organizations that are trying to stop this, but those folks don't seem to want to talk about any of that stuff. They only but want to do. talk about this hyper-politicized movie. But we do. Yeah. Yeah, we do. So use the movie, which I heard was pretty good, but, but whatever. Um, use the movie to advance those groups. I agree. I know it's a good hey, oh, oh, so you like the sound of freedom? You like the sound of freedom? Well, these are groups that are actually yes. dealing with human trafficking. This is Help my argument. Them. Hype yeah. them. Hype them. I mean, yeah. that's that's how you use the movie. And I'm going to remember anytime somebody talks to me about the sound of freedom, I'm going to say, look, there's these groups. And 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 I would even ask, um, if you can, I don't know how you do it on your um, I don't know how you set up when you uh show the podcast. I would say maybe list it. In this podcast, when you in the um, I have a link page, page for this podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Every time I see anyone post about that movie, I always say, "Hey, since you're into this, check out these movies." And also, and then I look for whichever state, and I say, "This is the organization mm -hmm. in your neck of the woods that has uh, that is working very tirelessly to end human trafficking and sex trafficking of children and all of that. But here's yeah, the I mean, that I've found yeah, no, is that on. the ball drops there. Yeah. They want to be angry and yell and scream, but they don't actually want to be part of the solution. But we know people do want to be part of the solution. We do. We know people that are the solution that will be part of the solution. I think we have to recognize 
who those individuals were on, are on the right that are using the um, sound of freedom for political um, for political needs and ignore all that because there is a real problem. Reason why it is so successful um, is because it is a, it is a real problem. It's based on a true story and it needs to be addressed. We can talk about those that are in fact addressing it. And that's and that and by the way, a number of those groups are run by people from the LGBTQ community, you know, and though and that's how you use you don't even have to trash the movie. You don't even have to talk about the movie. I have no feelings. You don't even have to see yeah. the movie. <laughs> yeah. Just say yeah. if this is your concern, if, if you're concerned about this, this is where we should be going. We should really be boosting these groups up ourselves. Say hey, we've been doing this all along. QAnon hasn't. We have. We so if you're concerned about it, this is where you go. This is where you go to find. And we don't. Need, we don't have to go tip for that. No, I agree. Say, Yo. It's just like whenever people talk about um, where um, they always come at me about black crime, but no matter what the argument, no matter what the discussion, and they always say the same thing. It says you always see people marching against the police. Where aren't they marching against the crime in their communities? My easy response is, we just had one yesterday. Because there's always, as some of these, uh, in, in a lot of these communities, stop the violence rallies. There's always, I mean, I mentioned DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince earlier. DJ Jazzy Jeff and Charlie Mac, and Charlie Mack, um, their bodyguard at one time, they put these kinds of rallies together in Philly. So I always say, hey, uh, to all you conservatives out there that are looking for it, we can use you. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Some actually do show up to try to be a part of the solution. And that's and that's good. Uh, but see, that's what I do. If you're talking about trying, uh, if you're talking, or if you're talking about black crime, why don't you help those within those communities that are actually trying to do something about it instead of trying to use it as a way to shut me up because I'm talking about your crimes? <laughs> because yeah. in case you've forgotten. Um, Derek Chauvin committed a crime when he murdered George Floyd. That doesn't get a pass because other black people are committing crimes too. That's you know? right. And what about <laughs> so, isms are really frustrating. Well, tell people the best way to find you and if they want to be of service and help the cause, how to do that. Well, I mean, okay. OnePeoplesProject.com is the best way to reach the I'm very bad <laughs> at self-promotion sometimes. I just I just like to teach. But here's the thing. OnePeoplesProject.com is where you can find the uh, uh find us. We're also on Facebook as One People's Project. We're also on Threat. Well, we're not on Threads yet as One People's Project. We're going to be today. <laughs> um we're on Twitter for what's that's worth these days as One People's Proj. We also have a news line called, I, and we're on Instagram at One People's Project. We're also on Instagram at, uh, at oh, I'm sorry. We're, um, we also have another website called Idavox, I-D-A-V-O-S. It's named after Ida B. Wells, who we consider to be someone who has spoken out about things when no one else would. So Idavox.com. 
Twitter is IdaVox at OPP. Instagram is just IdaVox. And we can always use donations. We got stuff to sell. We got T-shirts and um, pins and CDs. Somebody actually made a um, CD uh, to benefit us. And that's on our website right now. It's a punk CD. So, um, you know, I enjoy it. <laughs> Watch the movie Skin on Amazon Prime. You can find the short film Skin that actually won an Oscar. It's on YouTube. You can find... Um, Erasing Hate. Erasing Hate is somewhere in the wind. I think it's on Tubi, T-U-B-I. I think it's on, I think it's on that. There's also a documentary that um, I'm a participant in called um, Alt-Right Age of Rage that was on Netflix for a while. Um, that's in the wind now too. Um, there's also a documentary called We Don't Walk in Fear, but you pretty much have to go to film festivals or invite me to your town where I can just show it to you. Um, because we're not putting it out there yet. We want to see where it goes. Um, and that's that. And uh, But like I said, go to our website. if you, We really could use um, the support um, because I've been bouncing around the country for the past couple of um, months and uh, I want to keep doing that. But I want to keep seeing everybody. I mean, I'm having a good time with that. So. If you come to California, to Los Angeles, let me know. I will be in Los Angeles soon enough. I just don't know when. Uh, it's just a matter of somebody calling me and say, hey, come on out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for your time today. Ah, thank you. I appreciate all of this. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I mean, choose love over hate. I think that's the best indeed. way to go. Indeed. Indeed. Choose love over hate because... The residuals are better. I mean, our slogan is hate has consequences, but love has its benefits, baby. Believe all that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Thank everybody. Bye. All right. Take care. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.